As you know, we are going through the book of Colossians. We are uh, in our fifth message tonight. We started this a few weeks back. And we're covering in chapter one, we're working our way through the first chapter and we'll be going through verses 15 through 18 tonight. And I know that Dr. Spavi said we'll be well finished before the Cowboys game, but this text is so rich that you could spend 30 to 45 minutes in each verse. We got four verses to cover, so there's no promises here. Uh, I, he, he can't speak for me, so no. No, we, we definitely will be done before then. But I, I'm in all seriousness, as I was studying this passage of Scripture, verses 15 through 18 in Colossians chapter 1, there is so much to be unpacked about who Jesus is, who Jesus Christ is, and his sovereignty, his, his majesty, just, just everything about him seemingly encapsulated in, in four verses. And of course, uh, you can never exhaust who Christ is, but these four verses really dive deep uh, into who Christ is, uh, that he has always been, and that he will forever be. What's interesting, one of the things that's interesting about this passage of Scripture is that scholars, many scholars believe that this was used um, as a hymn that the church would sing in, in their corporate time of worship. Now, whether or not that is true, whether or not that was something that they did, this passage truly has, at least in my studying of it, has led me to really worship Christ. And I hope the same for you tonight as we look at this passage of Scripture, these four verses, uh, it, it should make us want to exalt our Savior and our Lord. To give a little recap of what we've been going through in Colossians, um, it's important to remember that um, that the false teachers that were kind of trying to influence these Christians here, they they believed Christ was prominent, but they didn't believe that he was preeminent. So they believed that he he was an exalted one, but they did not believe him to be how. Paul was teaching these believers that he was and is uh, not just the Son of God, he is God in the flesh. He's God, he was God incarnate, and that he rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and he is alive forevermore. They didn't believe that. They believed him to uh, be a created being of God, so not eternal. So we're going to see some language that Paul uses. And sometimes what I, what I found, or at least I believe to be kind of a play on words on what uh, his opponents would, would say, and he, was, he would spin it in a way uh, to present the truth. So that's what uh, Paul is kind of doing here. We remember a few weeks back when Elias preached uh, that Paul was praying hard for their spiritual well-being in verses 9 through 12. We find that, that they would know the will of God for their life, that, that they would be able to walk in it. And Elias walked us through that. And then a couple weeks ago, before our Christmas service, Dr. Spivey preached on verses 13 and 14, talking about how we have been transferred from darkness to light, and we have been forgiven. And Paul kind of transitions from that prayer that he has to them and you, you see 
honestly, one of the greatest Christological passages in the New Testament, describing who Christ is. Usually, whenever uh, I walk through a text, I, I don't read it all and then walk through it. I, that's just kind of my preference as far as it helps me. But I can't help but read all of this at once, and then we'll walk through it. So, Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, Paul writes, He, he being Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this time that we have together. And I pray that uh, you will remind us that as your word says, it's alive and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so I pray that it will do just that tonight. Your spirit will work in our lives and we'll apply this truth to our lives. It's in Jesus' name, amen. So as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, we, we covered how we have been transferred from darkness to light. We as believers have been forgiven. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have turned from your sin and called him to be the Lord and Savior of your life, you have been forgiven. You've been eternally secured in Christ. And I would say now in this text that we just read and we're going to break down, um, I believe Paul now is really wanting to argue Christianity, the purpose of Christianity is Christ and Christ is God. So Christianity, the goal, the purpose is Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus is God. He's not, he is not a creation of God. He is not a um, deity that is lesser than God the Father. He is God. And we really see that shine forth in this text. Starting in verse 15, we read, He is the image of the invisible God. In the Old Testament, other than theophanies, you know, accounts of what appeared to be God coming down, other than the Old Testament, and, or other than that, and other than Genesis 1 through 3, you don't see a physical presence of God. You don't see God in the flesh. As I said, other than Genesis 1 through 3 and a few other accounts. In fact, God, what does God say? No man can see me and what? And live. When Moses in Exodus was, was asked, the, asked God himself, he said, I just want to see you. And he says, no man can see me and live. And what happens? He, he basically veiled his eyes and he was able to see the backside of God. That's how holy our creator is. The fact that no man can see God and live. So when we come to this passage and see he being Christ is the image of the invisible God, what does this mean? First of all, is this contradicting the Old Testament? 
There are a couple questions we have to ask when we see this first part of verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God. So does that mean that the Old Testament is, con- or the New Testament, Paul is contradicting the Old Testament? Or does it possibly mean that Christ is just somewhat of an image of God and that that's it? He's just some sort of representation of the Father? Could it be one of those two meanings? If you're not careful and just kind of skim over it, it might seem that way. But Paul is not saying either of those things. He's not saying that the Old Testament is wrong and by any means God is wrong for saying no man can see me and live, nor is he saying, well, Christ is just some sort of image, this slight representation that you could see that resembles God. No, he's saying that if you want to see God, look at Jesus. He is God. If you want to see how how God handles certain situations on earth as he encounters people, look at how Jesus encountered people in his life, in his daily walk, in his daily ministry. Why? Because he is God. We read that in several places in scripture. You find it in 2 Corinthians. I'll just read this. 2 Corinthians uh, 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 6, Paul also writes, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in what? The face of Christ. The writer of Hebrews also says in chapter one, verse three, starting out, he says, and he is the radiance, he being Christ, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And the next part of the verse goes well with what we'll talk about in a few minutes and upholds all things by the word of of his power. So he is the exact representation of God. Why? Because he is God. Christ is God in every way. And so Paul is emphasizing this to his to the readers of this letter so that they would not be confused about what others might be saying about their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Christ is God in every way in representation, and he is the manifestation of God. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here, that he is the image of the invisible God. But not only does he say that, he says at the end of verse 15, he's the firstborn of all creation. Now here we come again to what seems like could be a a contradiction. He's the firstborn. Well, Chris, I thought you just said that, that Christ has always been, that there is never a time where the Son never existed. So what does Paul mean when he says firstborn? Because this this can be a little confusing. Well, as I mentioned, these false teachers, they believed Christ to simply be another emanation of God, that he, in fact, maybe derived from, from angels, and that he was the first created being, but that he was a created being of God. So Paul, I, I think he might be kind of playing with this a little bit with, with, what they, with what those false teachers believed by saying he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, in the Greek, this term, this word firstborn, it could be used of two ways. It could be used born chronologically first, you were the firstborn, or, and it was used more in this way, rank, in preeminence, in potential, in title, And that's what, obviously, Paul is using here in this text. He's not contradicting himself. He's the image of the invisible God because he is God incarnate. 
but he's also the firstborn of all creation because he has always existed. And this verse actually makes more sense as you move forward because in verse 16, we see not only that he has always been, but his role in creation. We read in verse 16, for by him or in him, you could, you, you could also say for in him, all things were created. All things were created. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about Jesus Christ. Now, oftentimes, we think of Christ and his role as the incarnate Son of God who, who stepped in humanity, as Paul so writes in Philippians chapter 2, the humility that Christ took on by becoming a human on taking on flesh. What we celebrate this time of year, the incarnation of Christ, because of him doing that, him doing that gives us even a chance to have eternal life, living that sinless life that we couldn't live, that we cannot live, dying that criminal's death that we deserve, conquering death and the grave. Oftentimes when we talk about Christ, that's what we talk about, and rightfully so. As I mentioned, we celebrate that this time of year. We should always celebrate it, but specifically this time of year, we celebrate that. But what does Paul say? What else does he say about Christ? He says, by him, all things were created. Christ's role was not just to be the sacrifice for our sins, the sacrifice for humanity. He took the role in creation. He fashioned the body that he would step into in, in, in humanity to live that sinless life that we could not live. I think oftentimes we forget that. For by him, all things were created. Talk about humility, that the creator of the world would take on human flesh and live that life that we could not live so that we might have eternal life. He says, all things were created. Christ is the creator. And he says, for by him, or as I mentioned earlier, in him, all things were created. I think it's interesting that Paul uses this, this phrase here, by him or in him, and not through him, all things were created. Why, why would Paul use this language of saying, in him, all things were created? Well, I think it kind of goes and works with, Paul is kind of coordinating with what he wrote, in my opinion at least, in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 4, whenever he says, just as he chose us, what, in him, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. So not only did he create, the, in him is he created the world, we were chosen before the foundation of the world in him. He knew you before he even said, let there be light. That's our God. And not only that, just like his, uh, creation, his election of his people takes place in him. Ephesians 1, 4, what I just read. In him before the foundation of the world. He is the elect, what we see here. And so we kind of see this uh, similarity in language. The one through whom creation took place is the one through whom divine redemption was accomplished. And we saw that a few weeks ago in verses 13 and 14, where he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sin. It says that 
He, he was the creator, created all things, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. I, I could go in and explain that, but, or I could just say he created everything. He's in control of everything. That's what Paul is saying. And all things have been created through him and for him. The purpose of the creation is to glorify God, to glorify Christ, so that we might be able to look and say, we serve a mighty, sovereign, holy God, so that people would actually turn to him. And he goes on to say, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. A couple of things we see here in this verse is when he says that he is before all things, we see the eternality of God. What does John write in John 1, 1? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and what? The word was God. So before time was ever created, who was there? God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. The triune God was there before time was. It reminds me of John chapter eight when, when Jesus is speaking and he is talking about Abraham as if he just knows him personally. And this has been centuries since Abraham has lived and everyone's kind of scratching their head thinking, what are you talking about? What, who is this man to say that I know Abraham? And what does Jesus say? Before Abraham was what? I am. He has always been, and of course he's referencing that language back in Exodus chapter three when God is calling Moses, said, and Moses said, I, I can't, who am I, gonna, who am I gonna say sent me when I tell Pharaoh to let your people, let my people go? He said, I am sent you. And you better believe those Pharisees that were listening to Jesus when he said before Abraham was, I am, they knew exactly what he was saying, which is what made them hate him even more and say, we gotta get rid of this guy. We see the eternality of the Son in verse 17. He is before all things. And listen to this. And in him, by him, in him, all things hold together. Have you ever taken the time to, I mean, I'm definitely no scientist or physicist or any ist there is. That's, that's for sure. But have you ever taken the time to read just about anything uh, in our world or in our universe? You know, the, I've, I've heard it put, it's called the Goldilocks zone where that's what they call it because earth is in just the right place for it to not, is that right? Kelly works for NASA. I probably should have her be up here and tell this. So I probably picked the wrong subject. Anyway, but earth is, is, the perfect distance from the sun. If it was slightly closer to the sun, what, we'd all burn. If it was slightly farther from the sun, we'd all freeze. Kind of like Texas weather, somewhat. But we, we don't. We're in that perfect spot. And every time of year, or every year, we experience what? Winter? And we experience spring, summer, Fall, we experience all the seasons, some may be longer and some may be shorter than others, but we experience those seasons every year, year in and year out. Why? Why is this? I mean, there's a bunch of reasons. There are a bunch of um, technical reasons that are true, 100% true. But ultimately, why are those things true? It's because 
what? In him, all things hold together. All things, as I think the King James put it, all things consist. All things hold together through Christ. This God, the, the creator of the universe, this God who has always been, holds the world in his hands. He's in complete control. And you know what? He holds your life and is in control of your life. It might feel like everything, I don't know what's going on in your life, but it might feel like everything's falling apart. If it doesn't feel like that right now, I'm sure it has at times. You might wonder what in the world is going on with the nation in which we live. This seems out of our control, and quite frankly, it is. And it might seem like there's no hope in your life. It might seem like a whole host of things. But we can rest assured that the one who holds the universe in his hand is in control of your life. And he knows exactly where you are. And he knows exactly what you need. And he wants to be there for you. The God of the universe who created all these things, who is so mighty and magnificent, wants to have a relationship with you and with me. What greater privilege do we have than that? All the other, all other religions throughout the history of mankind, whether it was in ancient Greek, um, ancient Greece, or any really any other period, the deity, yeah, he might have created the world, but he stepped back, and you didn't go to him because he was too holy, and he wouldn't come to you because he didn't want to he didn't want to mess with human beings. We have the complete opposite of that in God in the sense that he is holier than any other God that man has imagined and that he wants to have a relationship with his creation. How, greater of a, how great of a God do we serve in the fact that he wants to have a relationship with us? He holds everything in his power and his control and yet he knows you by name and wants to have that relationship with you. As we go on to verse 18, it says, He is also head of the body, the church. So this, this God who created the earth, who sustains the earth, he doesn't just create it and step back and says, y'all have fun. He sustains the earth. He's in control of your life. He is also the head of the church, the head of the body, which is the church. Now, there might not be a specific, explicit definition in the New Testament of what the church is as far as church definition. This is the church, but you see it all throughout the scripture in the New Testament described in metaphors of what the church is. Paul often describes it, as we see here, as a body. You read in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 12, that we all function together as the body of Christ and the church flourishes the most whenever all the body parts are functioning, right? And we spend so much time on that as we should because we, as a part of the body of Christ, all having different gifts, all having different talents, use those gifts and talents to serve one another and ultimately serve Christ in the church. And that way we see the church flourish and as a result, the community around us should flourish and we talk about that a lot, which we should, but oftentimes we forget to talk about who the head of the church is. And just like the brain controls the body, Christ is over and is the Lord of the church. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's also the head of 
the body, the church. And I think we oftentimes forget that. It's, it's, it's weird to say, but it's easy to forget that sometimes. Why do we have so much division in just churches in general? Well, I think it's because we forget who the head of the church is, that it's Christ, the one who laid his life down for his bride, the church. And why do we forget that? Well, I think we forget that he's in control of everything and that he's the sustainer of the universe and that he holds everything in his hand and he is perfectly capable of running his church. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't even need us, but the fact that he wants to use us is a blessing from him, but we forget oftentimes of his sovereignty and that he is the head of the church and how he purchased it as well. And I believe that, honestly, if we kept in the forefront of our minds as Gambrel Street Baptist Church and just churches in general, churches in our area and churches around the world, that he is the head of the church, a lot of the issues in churches, a lot of the drama that goes on in churches would not happen, would not exist. Why? Because in Ephesians chapter two, this is what I, this is what I see. In Ephesians 2.11, therefore, Paul writes, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, so you weren't Jews, in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. So Paul's saying, you know, the Jews are calling you the uncircumcised, the, the ones that weren't chosen which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you at one time were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Christ, the head of the church, did that. And sometimes when, since we're not in that context anymore, we don't realize the magnitude of what that meant. You had a Jew and a Gentile who would never, a Jew would not associate with a Gentile, especially in worship, because the Gentile was unclean, they were uncircumcised, they were an unbeliever, they were not chosen of God. But when Jesus stepped on the scene on planet earth, sacrificed himself, tore down the dividing wall, you had the Jew who, knew they, who, who believed they were chosen in God and the Gentiles who were dogs in their eyes now are together in worship. The Jew who had life and everything put together, the Gentile who was far off from that in the Jews' eyes. And now Christ is saying, y'all are one. If you believe in me, you're one. Worship together. I think we don't realize how hard that probably was for them at first. But you know what? They got through it. Why? Because it was the blood of Christ that tore down that dividing wall and brought them together. And that same Christ who shed his blood on the cross and shed his blood for his church, shed his blood for you, for me, is that same God and same Christ who is still over the church today. Nothing has changed. And if we keep that at the forefront of our minds, that he is the sovereign creator of the universe, he is the head of the church, I guarantee you, anything that tries to come between us and our service to the Lord, as long as we realize that, that he is the head of the church, a lot of our problems would disappear. I guarantee it.
because it happened for them. Now, I'm not saying that we won't experience heartache, we won't experience problems, but a lot of the petty problems would disappear. And I'm not talking to just Gambrel Street. I'm not saying that that's going on here. I'm just saying churches in general. So he says that he is the head of the church. He is from the beginning, the firstborn. He uses that word again, the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So he uses this language of being the firstborn from the dead. Same use, not chronology, rank. Because in fact, he, he raised people from the dead before he was risen from the dead, right? But he rose, the difference between the two, the, the, those two different accounts, someone of Christ raising someone from the dead and Christ himself raising from the dead is the one that he would raise from the dead, they ended up dying again. Christ, when he died, as we heard this morning in our missions banquet, it's an empty cross. Why? Because he's not there anymore. It's an empty grave. Why? Because he's not there anymore. He's alive and he's in heaven. He is alive forevermore. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first one to ever rise from the dead and never die again. Because why? He, once again, is God, firstborn from the dead. So, what do we do with this text? Well, ultimately, I think it should drive us to worship. It should humble us to show us how weak we are, how frail we are, how finite we are, but how great of a God we serve. And there are times in our life, in our lives where we encounter trials, heartaches, as individuals, as a church, challenges that we face that we think, how in the world are we going to get through this? And all we have to do is remember the one whom we come and worship Sunday morning, tonight, Wednesday night, should worship every day of our lives. He's the one that holds the universe in his hand, and he's the one who cares for you. When we realize that, that that's the God we serve, that he is most satisfying, then we won't want anything else. And it will cause us to exalt our Savior and worship him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for using Paul to describe you, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead, that you are over all things, that you're the creator, and not just creator, but creator and sustainer. And not only are you the creator and the sustainer of the universe, you created each and every person here tonight. You know them by name. You know everything about them, good and bad. And even with all of that, you still love us. You still want to have a relationship with us and you call us to come to you. And I pray that anyone who is here or anybody watching online, if they have not come to you yet, that they will turn to you knowing that you are not just the sustainer of the universe, but the sustainer of our lives. You're sovereign, you're holy, you love us. And because of that, we give you praise and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name.
Amen.